0: My extremism is limited to, you know, going to mass on Sundays, having five children, being in a long term monogamous marriage, and believing that children do best when they're raised by their mother and
1: father. For people that read this book and they're like, Peachy is encouraging me to homestead.
0: I have never milked a goat. You're welcome, goats. (laughs) You know, I make fun of people on the left. I make fun of feminists. I feel like mockery is one of our very few rhetorical weapons that we have.
1: How do you get past the natural inclination, I think, and even I struggle with this sometimes, to just offer disclaimers and not try to offend everyone?
0: You're apologizing. And as soon as you're apologizing, you're losing. And why bother? read your message. You're just undercutting every single thing you believe in and every single thing that you're saying. What is the point?
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Loopcast. Today, I might be joined by the funniest guest uh, we've had so far on the program. Today, I'm joined <laughs> by a woman known as Peachy Keenan. Uh, she wrote a book called Domestic Extremist, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War, and she has a hilarious Twitter account. And yes, that's a that's a pseudonym, correct?
0: Yes, this is not my real name. Correct. Okay.
1: <laughs> so this is going to be a fun one, Peachy. Uh, so how did you come to become so extreme?
0: Yes, I, like I like my book says, I'm a domestic extremist. Of course, the joke is that I'm not actually a domestic extremist. Um, you know, according to the FBI's definition, I'm just extremely domestic.
1: Have you been in any school board meetings recently? Or,
0: <laughs> yeah, no, not not yet. My extremism my extremism is limited to you know going to mass on Sundays, having five children, being in a long term monogamous marriage, and believing that we, children do best. Um, when they're raised by their mother and father, and these are now extreme positions, and I basically have become a radical fanatic um, for someone who lives here in Los Angeles.
1: <laughs> gotcha. And, and uh, hubso, hubsosexual, is that correct?
0: Well, no, I well, I guess I am a husbo sexual. Oh, husbo.
1: Sorry, I didn't even say it right.
0: You know, you can people can make <laughs> up their own um, sexual orientations and gender identities. So I identify as a husbosexual, and what that means is that I am only attracted to men who identify as my husband. Mm. Right now, that's just one person, but you know, you never know.
1: That's extreme capital E. <laughs> Everything that we've heard so far, extreme capital E. Um, so you said LA, and that's definitely an yeah. extreme place to be a pro-life Catholic. Uh, how did you end it up is. in the LA area?
0: Well, I'm from here. I was born and bred in Los Angeles, um, on the west side of Los Angeles. I grew up as a very secular atheist. Um, I never set foot in any kind of, you know, place of worship in, in, you know, the first 30 years of my life. Um, And I was raised to believe that religion was, was, was dumb, was a waste of time. No such thing. You're too smart for that. And I was just basically this sort of upper middle class, secular, meritocratic, um, proto-feminist raised by the culture. In other words, I didn't know anything. I was a, I was a half-baked liberal, a half-baked feminist, and when I came out of college, you know, my elite university, I I just basically had a, had assumed, you know, I had kind of bought into all the feminist lies. I mean, all of it, you know, just don't get married. Your goal is to avoid marriage. Your goal is to avoid pregnancy. You don't want that to bog you down. You want to, you know, do whatever you want to do in the moment. You want to pursue a career. You want to, you know uh, fine cute guys, whatever, all that, was, all the, all the, the whole package, you know, we all kind of, me and my friends all believed in it. And it wasn't until much later in life that I had a, you know, my road to Damascus moment where I realized, oh shoot, (laughs) that was, (laughs) that was all a mistake.
1: That is quite a metaphor. So what was your road to Damascus moment?
0: Politically, I kind of got had my, my awakening really on 9 11, um, where I realized like, oh, other people on the left Are burning the U.S. flag. Wait a second. Aren't we supposed to be patriots? So that was sort of my first um, entry into like political conservatism. And once those scales kind of fell from my eyes, you know, I was still kind of a social liberal. I was still pro-choice. My friends had had abortions and I was supportive of them. Totally. You know, it's a clump of cells. And then really it wasn't until I met my future husband um, in my late 20s. He was the first conservative pro-life person i had ever met in my entire life ever. Wow, <laughs> i had never been in, the, been in the same room with someone who was pro-life <laughs> like ever okay and so he was you know he's a smart guy and he he you know he likes to debate and we would have these debates and you know in the process of like kind of wooing me and courting me you know i was like at first i was kind of horrified you know what will my friends think i can't date this person
1: I'll be I'll be blackballed if I could ask you on that, because I think that happens a lot and actually probably now more so from the male side where they're meeting someone that maybe has much different views, much different beliefs. What got you past that initial like, oh, my gosh, who's this crazy human being alien that believes these (laughs) things to like actually seeing him as, oh, you know, this could be a potential partner.
0: Yeah, well, I think, you know, when it when it's someone who's like one of your, you know, someone kind of your age, who's also attractive, who you like um that helps you know the the toxic masculinity um works okay <laughs> and this is not coming from some like you know old man lecturing me or so, screaming at me this is coming from someone who's cool and smart and someone that i was like starting to date and like so um that helps um convince you and i think that i was sort of ripe for transformation already because i had seen just the ravages of feminism already by just life experience, um, in my own life, my friends' lives. It was, it was obvious that, you know, there, there was a better way. And so I think I was ready to hear. I wasn't, I, I was never like a full, you know, blue haired feminist or anything like that. Um, and so I think I was partially, I was ready to be converted and partially I just, you know, luckily met the per- a person willing to spend the time to convert me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, for sure, and I know this is kind of a conjecture. I guess would you say that there's a significant portion of men and women that maybe kind of have those milk toast, run of the mill, left leaning views that just it's just until they meet someone that's intellectually serious to have a debate with. Like, do, uh, for example, you didn't seem very entrenched in those views; it just seemed kind of the views of the culture at the time. Do you think that exists yeah, exactly. now, or it's become more extreme and ent- entrenched?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. For me, they were definitely skin deep. I never really thought too much about it. At the time, people weren't as political as they are. You know, they didn't. their whole identity wasn't wrapped around politics and specific issues. It was really more like, we want to just have fun. And what are the things that will enable our, our, our fun having? Um, it does feel like, especially younger women, um, college age women, are, are much more radical. And they're, they've been now raised in it, been drinking it in for so long. And if they let go, um, then they can be they can be that the social cost is higher for them because of social media. They can be outed as far right extremists and they'll lose all their social credibility. They'll lose um, their friend group. And and that's your currency on Instagram and, and TikTok that that that's all there is. That's your life. And if you get outed as someone who, well, maybe they don't fully support, you know, full term abortion. Um, That can be really bad for you. And so it's much harder, I think, to crack those nuts. Uh, No pun intended. And that's one of the reasons I wrote my book was hopefully to peel off some of the women who can still kind of be shown the light. And women are, I think, pushing back on this notion of like, you know, young women need to have it all. I just they don't need men. And I think some young girls are like, wait, hold on a second. Maybe I do want a man.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. And this could be a good opportunity to, to go into your book. I mean, I'm really struck by so many parts of it, but you said a lot of the things that feminism you felt had taken from you personally, and I'd imagine probably have only accelerated over time. And uh, some of the things, I just have some in front of me, fleeting fertility, the unique role of women, the definition of a woman, femininity and its virtues, wedded bliss, your unborn children. Maternal instinct, your real job, parental authority, and your happiness. I mean, this is a comprehensive list of pretty much everything (laughs) that I think would make you happy. Yeah, Um, right. Wow. Uh, How did you? How were you able to distill? I think such broad pain and general pain. I think a lot of women feel into such distinct uh, chapters. There.
0: Oh, I think that's just from you know growing up as a liberal feminist and just being part of that world gave me a unique perspective on what. Um, women were reading and imbibing as, par- as part of the feminist package and just being sold all of these myths, for example, that your fertility is fungible. You can delay it indefinitely as long as you want. There's no such thing as you know aging out of your fertility. We have all these new reproductive magic tricks. Don't worry about that. And just, and just basically, um, the way I just divided it up was just all the different things, all the different aspects of a woman's life that are touched by feminism and the things that she does give up and the things that you do, really, some of them only realize this much later in life. Uh, I'll, I'll have people reach out to me on Twitter and say, you know, you're so right. I wish I had read this 10 years ago before I decided to wait and delay um, having a family delay marriage and now what i found out is it's too late. And my perspective is that it was almost too late for me. Um you know i got married in my late met my husband in the late 20s i started having children in my early 30s. My first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage, you know, and so i mean fortunately i was able to have five children. I feel very blessed, but um the idea that i i almost missed out on having, you know, um a family size that i consider to be, you know, not even that big <laughs> compared to some catholic families i know but you know bigger than bigger than yeah. my friends who all stopped at two, you know. Right. And my i should say my former friends um who definitely do not approve of my extreme lifestyle at all. <laughs> and um so i just divided it up by just looking at all the ways women have been kind of lied to, tricked um they, they're told, you know, settling down is bad, getting married young is just utter taboo and wanting to become a mother in your 20s is like, why would you give up your life? Why would you, as Barack Obama said, want to be punished um, with a baby in the prime of your youth, in the prime of your fertility? I mean, can you imagine what, why would you do that? How, what a crazy thing to do. And certainly if I had ever said to the to my peers when I was, let's say 25, you know, guys, my goal is not to just like keep going out to parties. My goal is to find a husband, in love and Immediately have some children. I I, it would just (laughs) it would have been like telling them I was moving to you know Mars. I mean it's just not something that women are can even handle if you're if you grow up as a as a mainstream feminist. And unfortunately, these messages are are the mainstream. There is no alternative offered to young people outside of people who grew up in you know, literally like religious communities. Unless you're being raised as a Catholic and not just a Catholic. As a devout traditional Catholic, I mean, you're not really going to hear any of these messages anywhere else.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touched on it. There's a religious element to this, and in your personal story as well, you converted to Catholicism, obviously after growing up as an atheist. Uh, how did that conversion look for you? How did uh, tell me about that story?
0: If you had told me when I was a teenager that one day I'd be this devout Catholic, I would have laughed in your face. Um, I was an unlikely candidate. But basically, my husband and I um, got married. Like I said, we had unfortunately a miscarriage. At the baby was 12 weeks, so it was a huge shock. It was our first pregnancy, and we were just, like, totally devastated, unprepared for that scenario. And he had been baptized as a baby. His father was a fallen-away Catholic. And we were, you know, in mourning, we were really kind of, like, broken for, like, a full week. Or, you know, I mean, we just couldn't get a bed, even. And he said to me right after, he's like, well, I can't deal with this, so I'm going to convert to Catholicism. <laughs> And I was like, okay, well, I mean, that's your journey, you know. I'm not going to stop someone from doing that, but I was definitely like not ready to do that myself. But he did have a family background. Um, his father had been like an altar boy as a child. He had grown up around these stories, so he felt like that's what I need. I need to do something, and so he did the whole process of conversion, RCIA, and the whole thing. And I went. I just, you know, as a supportive wife, I tried to support him as best I could. And the process of going with him to mass every Sunday, starting then was really how my conversion began and meeting some of the priests. The very, um, I mean, these were incredible men of faith that I was meeting. And just the way they would talk, I would meet with them and I would talk to them. And I was like, you know, I'm not really ready. And they would just talk to me and they were so kind and so generous. And afterwards, after I converted, my husband told me that, you know, they would always tell him, whatever you do, don't like, don't push her. (laughs) Don't make her do it. She has to kind of go along. And so just as a process really of learning and edu- being educated, I knew nothing about Catholicism or the church. And so just, you know, and then I kept getting pregnant. So that kind of delayed my entry. I was like, had three under three <laughs> at one point. That's extreme. And then finally, yeah, <laughs> I didn't even <laughs> like have, I didn't know where shoes were for like five years, you know? <laughs> so as soon as I could find a pair of matching shoes, I was like, okay, I'm ready to do this. So it was a few <laughs> years after him. And I just went to the local parish and I signed up for RCIA.
1: Wow, that's amazing. I know uh, so many people, I think it's Bishop Barron has a quote about how we basically try to convince people to Catholicism with facts and logic when in reality you need to enter through the door of beauty. And I was just curious during this process of going to mass and meeting with the priests, uh, was there something that you recognized in that experience that was different Than kind of the secular, maybe joys that you had experienced previously? Like, was there a distinct change of character, I guess, in seeing these church communities and priests?
0: Yeah. I mean, being around, we started hanging around with like Catholic families and the level of of love and acceptance um, for me, even though I wasn't yet fully, you know, integrated into the church yet, but just, you know, I was already kind of, you know, pro-life and a social conservative and all that. And just like the love and acceptance and seeing these women who were really, they were domestic extremists. They were extremely domestic and they had lots of kids. And they were so much cooler and so much more interesting than the liberal feminists I I had known my whole life. I didn't have to hide who I was, how I felt about the world, how I felt about motherhood. It was like, it was weird. It was like going to a place where you are no longer an enemy who has to hide your secret your evil your bad side you know it was a place of like warm acceptance and i was like oh my goodness (laughs) like i want to just be whatever this is like this is where i need to be
1: yeah that's so amazing and one of the things that i realized in your book and of course in your twitter you have a sharp sense of humor uh clearly throughout this interview (laughs) i think it's coming up and i actually really appreciate that i think that it reminds me a little bit of a happy warrior ethos because you talk about tough things, of course, like all of the lies of feminism, what it's taken from women, how it's really hard. And we're talking about abortion, like taking life, like that's heavy. Uh, and yet you, you're able to kind of say the truth, tell the truth while also being specific and not kind of offering disclaimers, having a good sense. You were about no disclaimers. So like you were very specific about, hey, this is what it's taking from you. You could have this, but it's not there. I'm not going to add a disclaimer because, you know, some women, maybe this and that, you just kind of tell the truth. Um, how do you get past the natural inclination? I think, and even I struggle with this sometimes to just offer disclaimers and not try to offend everyone.
0: Right. I mean, I think I'm in too deep now
1: (laughs) to worry about
0: (laughs) if I'm going to offend anyone, you know what I mean? It's too late for me. I, I really do feel like I've burned those bridges and that's, and that's fine. There's no going back for me. And I think there's incredible moral clarity and, um, courage in basically taking a stand And uh, I'm not saying I'm courageous. I aspire to courage a lot of the time. But I feel like if I don't say these things, I I want someone to say these things. And so if that's going to be me, then it's going to have to be me. And I'll just I'll take the heat. I mean, and humor is a great shield. Um, Humor is a great way to deliver a message that is potentially controversial and harsh or edgy or whatever. But it's like the spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, and it also I feel like draws people in. This is really just how I talk and how I write. You know, my writing is very much the way I am in real life. Um, I I don't like things to be dry. I want to entertain my readers. I want to, and people have said they've enjoyed the book. They've 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 laughed out loud. That's that like thrills me to no end. You know, um, my my evil strategy is working. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I feel like there's so many. There are so many ways to present the, these ideas that are, you know, they're fairly dry, they're fairly direct, they're fairly like academic. And I'm not an academic. I'm not a I'm not a theologian. I'm not a social scientist. I'm coming at this from a perspective of just like a, a woman who was a writer. I was a writer for many years for big corporations. And I just kind of experienced this like lifestyle change. And so I'm coming at it from that angle, from like kind of an entertainment um writer perspective, my Gen X uh, cynicism it's hard to tamp down.
1: Yeah. It's, it's so cool. I'm trying to think of the right way to say this because I recognize it actually both within the Catholic church and within secular circles. There's the, the hammer that is often used is you're not being inclusive and you're not being kind. Like, like thinking of Jesus as nice, like often they're like, well, Jesus was nice. Uh, and of course there's no mention of nice in the Bible. um, So you see kind of like with the synod going on in the Catholic church of the inclusion and listening and the treatment of like uh, gay blessings, things like that. But then also in the secular world of like, well, you can literally be a woman, Tom, if you want to, like that's inclusive somehow. Uh, What I admire most, I think, about your brand of writing and your method of communicating is it's funny, yes, but it's true. So how do you think about when you deliver that message and how do you think about staying close to the truth, talking to both? people that maybe are too sensitive in both areas Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i i do get uh critique that i'm you know i'm too mean sometimes i'm 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 too you know i make fun of people on the left i make fun of feminists um you know i i feel like these people i feel like mockery is one of our very few rhetorical weapons that we have um making fun of things and skewering them and calling them out In a light way, I'm not calling for anything to be bad to happen to them. You know, I pray for these people, but I feel like that is completely okay to do. And I think that we need to be less scared to call things out. Um, I sometimes get in trouble with my Catholic friends when I criticize or make comments about Pope Francis, who I, you know, I I believe he's the Pope, but I do not believe in many of the things um, that he teaches. I feel like they are actually antithetical in, in a way, dancing around heresy. So, you know, and, and I get in trouble, like, well, you have to be obedient. You have to. And I like, well, that's hard for me. <laughs> I struggle <laughs> with that. I struggle with that a lot. But yes, like you said about disclaimers, um, I think I think that there's just you're you're just basically allowing you're, you're apologizing. And as soon as you're apologizing, you're losing. And why bother? read your message. You're just undercutting every single thing you believe in and every single thing that you're saying. What is the point?
1: If you were to speak to say, you know, I'm 25. If you were to talk to another 25-year-old woman right now, sit her down, who is kind of in that quasi-left-leaning state where maybe they don't fully believe it, but they're just kind of going along with the times. If you were to give them, you know, a distilled game plan to uh, take, basically be, becoming happy, because I think when you follow the truth, you are happy. So how, what advice would you give to someone in that seat?
0: Well, it depends on if they're going to like, you know, uh, you know, behead me if I start talking to them <laughs> as long as they're slightly receptive. No beheading. No beheading. Okay, good. Okay, good. So, I mean, the first thing is I would say to young women is to delete your dating apps. The dating apps have caused uh, so much grief and pain and have, are really sucking uh, the life force out of young women and, and young men. Okay, both. Um, They're just basically a merry-go-round that you're going to get on and you're never going to get off because the apps are designed to keep you a repeat customer. They're not designed to find you your soulmate in the shortest possible time. Um, I would say to someone that, you know, many, many testimonials of married people will say, they'll say, my life really began when I met my future spouse. My life really began when I finally became a mother or a father. Everything else is a blur. None of that stuff mattered. I wish I could take back a lot of the stuff I did, but this is where my life begins. And so I would explain to a young woman, I think the wisdom of people who have had these live longer is extremely valuable. I mean, the question is, will they listen? You know, I mean, don't you want your life, your real life to start as early as possible and do all those things together as like a loving, cohesive unit Sometimes I think, um, you know, my husband and I have lamented, like we, we didn't meet each other earlier in life. Um, I, what I was like, 28 or something when I met him. And sometimes I think, wow, it would have been so awesome to have met him earlier and to have not have been alone, you know, and doing, doing life alone. And so when you have your like life partner or your spouse, um, things, I mean, it's not always easy. There's ups and downs. And I mean, life is hard no matter what, single or married, but it would have been so much better.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. And yeah. the other
0: thing is I remind young women is that many older people, many, um, I, dozens of women have said to me, I wish I had one more child. They've said this so many times. <laughs> I feel like I want to. That's one of the reasons behind the book Many women, for whatever reason, their career, the economy, their husband didn't want another kid. They stopped at two kids. And they regretted that. And they do still regret that for the till the day they die on their deathbed. They will regret that. I have regrets that I've written about of not having one more. Um, Because at the time I had, you know, I was dealing with some like medical issues. And so I was like taking a break. We took like a four year break before my last baby. And to this day, to this day, I think, oh my, oh no, like what, who did I miss out on? And so I think that when you're, when you're so young, it's so hard to think about things you'll regret when you're 60 or 70. How do you even put that in your brain? But um, as a Catholic, one of the gifts of Catholicism is confronting mortality. When you're a secular atheist, you don't think about death. This is death true. Death is like, you don't, you don't, you don't ever, you don't know the, you know, if you see a live chicken, you're not around when it gets beheaded and its feathers <laughs> get plucked. It just gets wrapped in nice, clean plastic at the supermarket. You don't see the bloody, the ugly part, right? Yeah. As a Catholic, you're forced to confront death. Like, you're going to die. This is going to end. It's going to end much, much, m- much faster than you think.
1: <laughs> yeah. When you're
0: 25, you really do feel like, I'll be 25 forever. <laughs> I thought that. Um,
1: <laughs> Wait, I'm not going to be?
0: No, I know. And... um, I, I try to work backwards a like, where do you want to be when you're 60, 70, 80? Do you want to be alone?
1: Wow. Okay. So to those who don't want to be alone and have now deleted their <laughs> dating apps, um, it, because so I, I'm just speaking from experience. I have a lot of friends that are, are Catholic. They live in a city and are frustrated with the apps, of course, uh, but have a hard time meeting people because I think society's gone so digital that that's almost become the norm. And there's not really the same social spaces that maybe existed before. So uh, delete the apps, gone. Uh, How would you recommend meeting a meaningful partner uh, to someone that's maybe in that sea where they've deleted the apps, they're in a major, they're in a city, but maybe don't know exactly how to meet the right people?
0: Yeah, it's so difficult. I mean, I think since COVID, um, real life events and real life mingling has kind of become very difficult to put together. Um, I'm hearing this from, you know, friends who are younger, that there are, We used to have such a robust um, social scene. I mean, I think that does still exist, especially in cities. There's bars and restaurants and clubs, and I don't know what else concerts to go to. But if you're not living in a place that is going to be, let's say, a target-rich environment, a place with, let's say, a lot of young, attractive women who will be receptive to you, the toxic male, the toxic Catholic male or whatever, who wants a traditional marriage, okay, which is a good thing. That's all good. If you're living in, like, you know, the West Village of New York City or, you know, Hollywood or something, you're going to have slim pickings. And so I would <laughs> I would suggest to those people to quickly hook up with friends who have met people who are somehow, you know, on the same page. Um, what's helpful is if you have friends who went to Catholic colleges. They, the ones who seem to kind of get engaged in college. You know, there are these Catholic colleges out there where people, you know, when you get your missus degree, okay, great. <laughs> exactly. So they just need to call you and say, Can your college friends <laughs> set me up with like one of their sisters or something? Yeah. That's that's the, that's happened. the shortcut.
1: It has yeah. happened before I uh yeah, went to Maria University. I got buried when I was a senior in college or I got engaged oh. when I was a senior in college. So
0: Oh nice. Did you like Ave Maria? True.
1: Love the Ave Maria. yeah. It's I'll be the first to say. Highly recommend. It's a fantastic school. It's a school that takes its Catholic identity very seriously. And it's uh, in the Florida, weather, yeah. I mean, you can I mean, it's hard to argue with the the weather's pretty sweet. But the type of people that send their kids to Newman colleges may be considered like homesteaders, I think, by the public uh, stretch <laughs> of the imagination. So right. for people that read this book and they're like, Peachy is encouraging me to homestead, but they say live in a <laughs> suburb <laughs> no. or they live in a city. Uh, What would you say to people like that? Like, I would like to live this lifestyle, but obviously just not the country completely isolated from everyone else.
0: Right. Yeah, I I definitely address this in my book. Um, I have never milked a goat. You're welcome, goats. (laughs) I have never touched a loom. Um, To become a domestic extremist, you do not need to own a butter churn. You do not need to make your own clothing. Okay, if you do all those things, that is fine. God bless you. I am envious of your lifestyle. (laughs) um domestic becoming a domestic extremist you can do from your one bedroom apartment in a big city from your suburban house anywhere in the world okay you can become a domestic extremist right this minute you do not need to run off to the woods if we all ran off to the woods the woods would be really crowded (laughs) okay i am i am look i'm a i was raised in big cities my whole life you know uh mowing the lawn is something that i hire the gardener to do okay i'm not a farmer i never (laughs) will be a farmer I, I'm so sorry. I've lived in LA in New York. Like I can't I I admire women who do that lifestyle. Um, I'm not like, you know, that's not me. I'm a trad wife, but I'm a trad wife who <laughs> from the outside looks like a normal person walking around. I don't wear the skirts. I don't have, you know, which I and if you do, God bless you. But yeah, you do not need to be a homesteader. Now, the homesteaders, however, are a very potent force in this country. I think they are. You know, when when the apocalypse happens, whatever happens, we're all going to be running to to their barns like to please feed us, please take care of us. (laughs) Um, But they're just not right now. They're not enough of them um, to be, you know, to to save to save uh, the country, to save Western civilization. We kind of all have to be, you know, homesteaders in our in our mind and break ourselves off from mainstream American culture. Um, but we have to just do it. We can do it wherever we are. We can just start today. There's no need to buy a farm yet.
1: Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> as as someone who's pretty popular online, did you see the the trends like the trad wife trends where people are basically caricaturing like what they think a traditional wife looks like on TikTok?
0: Yes. Yes. I
1: wrote about I wrote about them. Why do you th- Why do you think that happened? That's just such an odd thing for me to observe.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's a trend, and I think there was one trad wife. On TikTok, who was basically presenting like a 1950s kind of Marilyn Monroe girl. And she would lean over with her like low cut little shirt with her pot, bring her, present her homemade pies. But this woman was childless. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we're talking about the same know. woman I'm
1: thinking of. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. That's how you know if someone is an actual trad or not. Like you just, how many kids do you have? Because the real trad wives <laughs> don't have time to do their hair or do their makeup. Okay. They do not look cute. They don't record or record
1: themselves for hours of content, I guess, on TikTok. They
0: they do not have time to do the homemade apple pie. They're like barely holding it together because they have multiple children in diapers. Okay. And so yeah, they'll they'll pull themselves together when, you know, they have a minute. (laughs) But they're not, you know, sewing their own corsets. Like, that's not a thing. So you know, she's cute. You know, that's cute. You can you could LARP it all you want. I mean, sometimes I think Maybe you have to fake it till you make it. So maybe if you if you aspire to the Good trad point. girl life, okay, trad girl dinner or whatever, um, then maybe you'll make it like, oh, I actually do like uh, feeding my husband and maybe I actually want to have a baby and that would be so cute. Whatever gets you there, you know, that's fine.
1: Yeah, you got to hook him somehow. It's a little bit of honeypot.
0: <laughs> um, so there's a honeypot. Uh, that's true. One thing
1: that. I wanted to ask you, because you're kind of involved in the circles now. You're in too deep, as we say. Yeah. There is a taboo about working women in trad circles, which is another... I have my own personal thoughts on that, but it definitely exists uh-huh. within traditional Catholic sur- circles. Uh-huh. And I have to point this out. You know, you, you worked for a long time. You wrote a book. We we're doing this interview. Uh, what would you say to people that maybe see your lifestyle working as like hypocritical, I guess, for the domestic? like How would you answer the people that are like, women should never work, they should always be in the kitchen, that kind of thing?
0: I mean, that's ridiculous. I I don't think women... I think women should have the right to work. I think they should have the choice to have a career, to be a CEO. My question is, girls, why do you want that? (laughs) I worked for a long time. I worked for a long time in an office. And before i had children and i have yet to meet one female who enjoyed it not one okay they were always like i hate my job this sucks like o- always i'd never met a single person who was like loving life as the, as a. I guess there are some now they've been kind of like psyoped into it because they can like make cute tiktoks about their day at the office or whatever <laughs> um with their like lattes. not doing
1: any work by the um, way yeah
0: no work no work involved <laughs> um yeah i mean, i I graduated college. I started working it right away. I always supported myself as a you know professional writer. I was a copywriter. I worked at like um for big corporations for a long time. But when I had my first child, I kind of intuitively knew that I was not going to I was not going to hand him off to someone to raise for me. That was just not even a question. like <laughs> you would have had to. You know, I would have gnawed off my own arm, I like to say, if you would try to get him out of my arms, like from my cold, dead fingers, you'll pry this baby from me. I wanted to nurse him and 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 be his mother. Basic. Right. And um, I did freelance. So for a long time, I would like freelance. Right. Work from home. I had clients. I would I would do conference calls like in my closet, holding the door shut while a toddler screamed, banging on the door nursing my baby while i typed i mean that was my life for a long time so no women absolutely should have the choice to work um you know if if you have a passion you know we need women and there are women in the workplace we need women to be the. the, i mean i think there's i wouldn't send my child to a school where they were being taught by men in preschool i would like women to teach preschool there are certain jobs i think only women should do quite frankly um, I think most of my children's teachers are women. I think women make fantastic nurses. What would we do without nurses? Um, and lots of other jobs that women do a wonderful job on. I'm not saying don't do not work. I think my point is that women now no longer have the choice to work. It is an imperative. It's both an economic imperative and it's a social imperative. You are not contributing to, to society and your your main value for society is through your career, to contribute to the economy, to be a working woman. And any kind of family or husband you want is a distraction. And that's going to make you economically um, lesser off. You're going to be a drain on society. If you do decide to have kids, we are going to give you short maternity leave and get you right back to work as soon as possible, thanks to daycare, subsidized daycare, um, all those things. Right.
1: Abort- abortion policy. And
0: abortion. Uh, one of the I talk about this in the book, the the egg freezing, egg freezing has become one of the key H.R. benefits that companies now offer women to hire them because come to work, you can freeze your eggs. You can freeze your fertility. Um, and it's a big draw. Oh, I get to free. It's free. I can freeze my eggs and have a family later after I'm when I'm 45, um, after you've worked, worked, given your best years to your given your fertility to your company then we'll let you unfreeze your family. And what they don't tell you is that you can, you can freeze your eggs, but you can't freeze your uterus. <laughs> you can't freeze your body. So women who are like, let's say in their 40s who unfreeze their eggs, what they quickly will find is that the IVF won't work on them. They're just too old. And the, the chances of one IVF cycle resulting in a pregnancy is something like six or 7%, and that's in a younger woman. So if you're in your mid-40s hoping to use your frozen eggs. Your chances of conceiving with every cycle of IVF is extremely low. And so that means you inevitably will have to hire a surrogate. Okay, so now there's another woman involved and you have to get the sperm donor. So this is not, I think, a viable solution. (laughs) and It's it's definitely not
1: morally acceptable either because we're not even talking about all the frozen fetuses that uh, now are...
0: Right, forget the morality of it. It's a nightmare just from top to bottom. And um, so I think that work is something that is fine. I, like you said, I work. Right now I work from home. I work when my children are in school. Um, there are ways to do it. I think that women have to understand that there is a season to everything. And when I, was, when I had young kids at home, my season was staying home with my children. And I had what they actually went to school and I went back to work. I worked in the office again at a very large entertainment company. I got pregnant again with my fifth baby and I was like, well, this is, I'm not going to come back, obviously. And people were shocked and horrified to learn that I was quitting. I had, I was making over six figures. We, I had gold plated benefits. I had unbelievable, um, you know, it was like a dream job in many ways for someone like a copywriter. And they were shocked that I would give it up. They were shocked. Why don't, what about daycare? Why don't you get a nanny? And I would be like, no, I, I actually want to raise my own infant. And it was like their minds would just explode. Like, wh- what do you mean? But, 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 Susie came back at six weeks, and these younger w- millennial women would come back to work after having their one baby, and they would always, they'd all say, "I'm one and done. Just my one kid. That's it." They would come back at si- when the baby was six weeks old, and I'd be like, "Where's your baby?" Yeah, and they'd be like, "Oh, you know, Timmy's at school," and they would call daycare, school, and they would kind of like. <laughs> wow. Oh, it was really hard to drop him off that first morning. I I cried, but he seems okay. Anyway, and I would just be like, I got to I can't like who has been telling them this, that they're you know, you don't need the money that bad. There's no amount of money. Like I would tell my husband, if we if if we can't like survive here in L.A. on your just your income for now, I'll happily move to a trailer like I'll live in Arkansas. Like I don't care. There's and he was like, I know, like we're going to make it work. And we did. (laughs) It was a huge sacrifice. But there was no other alternative. Do you know what I mean?
1: And why did you feel as though there was no other alternative?
0: Um, I think in me that, you know, maybe thanks to my conversion to to conservatism and to Catholicism, that my maternal bond, my maternal instinct was kind of still fully intact. And I think that is because I became pro-life, honestly. And I think what becoming pro-choice does to a young woman is it kind of emotionally... Psychologically, she is forced to sever her maternal bond with any future children. That enables her to to sell her eggs to the highest bidder. The egg-selling industry is huge. That enables her to get abortions and not cry at night about it. And that enables them to um, hand their baby over at six weeks to a daycare, you know, a minimum-wage person. So when you you grow up in the pro-choice mindset, um, your maternal instinct is just by you know by its na- by that nature of that decreased so much that you aren't as intensely affected or even Arnold maybe aren't allowed to express how you feel about leaving your baby behind to go back to the office to go back to your job. Um, it's it's like this deep psychological almost brainwashing that has been done to women who are stuck in the cult of feminism that enables them so easily. To relinquish their children and go back to their to their jobs i so I think thanks to my you know the fact that i was I was Catholic and I was conservative, my feelings about my own infants were intact, and I was able to very clearly understand that my only my o- the only place that I needed to be was with my my infant
1: so I think that's a really profound thought on human dignity and I think Catholicism, actually, that's where Catholicism really does shine. One one thing I always tell my friends, too, is when you are dating or you're looking for a partner to potentially marry, I'd say look very closely at their views on human life. So if they are pro-choice, if you think about if they're pro-choice in this scenario, this could potentially be the mother of your child. Because typically I'm talking to men. So what type of decisions, even if it's not abortion, would they be willing to make? And I think you articulated that so well. Um, If I could say and I think this comes across in your book, of course, but here for this interview, we talk about building a culture of, of human dignity. I think sometimes when people think about domestically extreme, it's like, let's leave society, let's become isolationist. I know we kind of established that's not what the book is about. Of course, you can do it everywhere, but how do we continue to build, I think, in Catholic circles you hear the culture of life or a culture that celebrates human dignity and that allows mothers to raise their children and that can have these households intact to have close family units. Like, How would you recommend building that practically in your local community?
0: I mean, I like I say in the book, it's really uh, a case of there's strength in numbers. And we have to it's a numbers game and we have to increase our own numbers. I mean, I'm the first person in my family to kind of adopt this lifestyle. Maybe back in the old country, there were there were I have like a great great grandmother who was a domestic extremist who had a lot of kids. But that has been lost over the last two or three generations um, of people who came to America and embraced American life, and ha- suddenly they're not having any kids. Um, so I'm hoping that my own children, you know, will start this new tradition in my family of, um, of living this lifestyle that was considered normal not, not that long ago, of having, you know, more than two children, staying married, you know, staying, uh, you know, understanding what what, 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 what life, unborn life is, understanding what it means to be chaste, um, to be modest, um, you know, the, the value of fidelity in relationship, all of these things that were considered very basic, <laughs> which have been lost. So I'm just trying to teach my children, I, you know, there's no guarantees. I can't guarantee you that they'll all turn out the way I, I am hoping they will. I mean, so far, it seems like we're going to have a good shot at getting a lot of grandchildren. I have my oldest son is definitely... <laughs> He definitely wants to get married young. He definitely wants to um, have a lot of kids. I'm so I'm I'm very hopeful. Um, It it really does start with us. I feel like, Um, you know, there's no way I can go and tell my neighbors, you know, who have no children and will never have any children. I can't really it's too late (laughs) for me to have any impact on them. But I think we can lead by example. Like you said, I don't, I don't like to hit people over the head. I'm not going to go on a pulpit and start screaming, you know, you need to get married and have kids. Sometimes people say to me like, oh, so you just want everyone to get married? Like, no. There's a lot of people who have disqualified themselves out of marriage and you can see them um, if you go to like a, you know, Democrat rally or a, or a pro-choice rally, <laughs> you can see what I'm talking about. I don't recommend shacking up with those broads, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you're, in, you're in for a world of hurt if you do. Okay. So when I say, no, these people are, they're saying they're not going to, they want to, they'll abort your baby and they do not want to marry you. Um, They're in polycules. They're they're open marriages. Okay. Avoid them. And when your enemy, you know, when your enemy is making a mistake, don't interrupt them. I feel like, you know, people make fun of me like for saying this, but can we over time outbreed the other side? They're choosing self-sterilization. They're, they're actually choosing it they're sterilizing themselves. Um, these women have up-armored their innards to prevent <laughs> any chance of pregnancy forever, basically. And they're also, insanely, sterilizing their own children by putting them on things like puberty blockers, which, oh, forgot to tell you, causes permanent sterility.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, they're basically sterilizing their children and, 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 and guaranteeing they'll never be grand- grandmothers.
1: There's arguments to be made. That's a little bit more extreme than staying home, staying married, and raising your kids.
0: <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I, no, we're the extremists.
1: <laughs> not that they're normal.
0: We're the extremists.
1: We are <laughs> the extreme ones. I completely oh, really yeah. agree with that advice. So, so PG, I had to do this, you know, because you have a Twitter account. You are anonymous. There are some very funny tweets on this account, and not to be the guys like oh, I'm going to go back at old tweets and cancel you. Uh, <laughs> oh. I'm not here to do that. I'm not here to do that. I saw some funny ones that I would like to bring up to your attention. Okay. <laughs> uh, first one, hear me out. Footloose, but a kid from a free red state who moves to a blue extremist lockdown state and he has to teach his stunted conformist new classmates how to have fun again. Did you sell the rights to this movie yet? Or are you <laughs> hanging on to it?
0: Isn't that great? <laughs> I, people were DMing me about that for months, saying, like, you have to make this, you have to write this. <laughs> I agree. I have not yet had a chance to write that script i actually would love to and yeah. basically if you if you remember the movie footloose it's a boy from new york city who moves to a little a small very religious town where all dancing and music has been banned because it leads to sid right um kevin bacon i don't know if you you know this is like an 80s movie that i love so much i'm
1: familiar with the. i'm familiar <laughs> okay. i'm not that young i'm familiar yeah. it's
0: so good so he basically um you know gets them all to dance again and brings back dancing they're allowed to have a prom and it's you know it's pretty wholesome and um so that's my idea that it's that it's the opposite it's it's a uh a, like a red state kid who gets transferred or whatever to a, like a private woke school in like the bay area or something where being heterosexual and cisgendered is like not allowed okay we're getting there at and all the girls at the high school are, like, non-binary or whatever, okay? And so he is just going to have to convert them back to 80s-style heterosexual, like, crushes and stuff. Right? I have a hit. It's a hit. <laughs>
1: hey, well, we might be in conversations with the Catholic vote after this one. Hang on to that. Don't sell that one away. We might, we might be interested in the, uh, the concept. Okay, uh, good. So I have, your, I have your most popular tweet. It's been liked 237,000 times, if you know what I'm going to say. Uh, the girl Leonardo DiCaprio will dump when he's 72 was born today. Uh, you were actually quoted. Uh, congratulations. You were quoted that's in right. page six. Uh, that's right. We have the girl Leonardo DiCaprio will dump when she's, he's 72 today. Someone tweeted and they, they linked you. How does I it know. feel to be published in that way?
0: <laughs> well, they didn't even say my name. Um, That's so funny. <laughs> I wrote that tweet when I was waiting outside my little daughter's ballet class. I was just sitting on a stoop and I just like, Di- DiCaprio had just. Had just dumped another girl on her 26th birthday. And so I wrote that and then I started getting notifications. It went all over the world. I was getting notifications and DMs in like multiple languages. And then it went to Asia and it came around again. That tweet, <laughs> that's tweet was a good one. I realized actually the way to increase my profile is to just make Leonardo DiCaprio jokes. Forget Catholic <laughs> mom posting. I'm just going to make Hollywood celebrity jokes from now on. Ye-
1: you really have chosen the wrong path. I think by rounding people up with politics, you should just stick to Leo jokes. I think you'd kill. Agreed. Exactly. Um, and then for Leo, those curious... Leo, call me. I can fix you. <laughs> read my book. Read my book. Um, yeah. For those who are curious, Peachy Keenan, where did that, that name come from and why do you have that profile picture, the art profile picture?
0: Oh, the the my avatar on Twitter is actually um, from a painting by Perugia of Mary Magdalene. And... So I thought that was appropriate, like a former sinner who turned good. And I also like the look on her face. Her her disapproving look was, I think, very (laughs) funny to me. Um, The name Peachy Keenan, I had had been on Twitter since about 2016, um, but I had gotten banned. You know, I think I said some like mean things to like, you know barack obama or something and twitter did, used did to you ban say, you did
1: you say a man was a woman or something or you said man can be a woman noth- or something like that
0: nothing i just right. s- stupid things but it, in those days twitter <laughs> would ban you for any criticism of like uh, anyone on the left and so i had to have a new account and it just popped into my head and it's ironic because peachy keen means everything's great but it's also ironic because things are not peachy keen things are very far from peachy keen and so i thought that's funny kind of sounds like a name i'll just make it keenan And then right after that, I started writing for The American Mind, which is a magazine um, through Claremont. And actually, the very first article that I sent them um, was called And You Call Yourself a Christian. Because I had seen this, um, and I hope you have time for me. I'll just really quickly tell you the story. I had seen Tucker Carlson on some show on TV. And he was saying something against, you know, about how we should build the wall. We should limit immigration on our southern border. We should control our border. Like very common sense. Um, ideas. And this left-wing journalist said, well, how can you call yourself a Christian and also call for limiting immigration? How how dare you? You, you call yourself a Christian? And I realized that I've, I'd heard that kind of um, tactic before, used against Christians and against Catholics, if you dare to speak out about certain issues. For example, you don't want Children getting transgender surgeries. Oh, you call yourself a Christian. You want them to kill themselves unless you approve their, uh, you know, bottom surgery or whatever. And about immigration, you want to restrict unlimited immigration from the South. How dare you? Those people are suffering. You call yourself a Christian. And so that was actually my first, um, my, the first thing I ever wrote as Peachy.
1: Wow. And, you know, I have to bring this up because this is your hometown team, the L.A. Dodgers. I've- Unfortunately, fortunately, got swept out of the playoffs after winning 100 games by the Diamondbacks. And if you Kerma. remember, they, they <laughs> honored the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, the Blackface Drag Nuns, as we call them. And uh, this was my experience with this, because I I've have a last, lot less time trading barbs on Twitter than you do, probably. But my experience was, I basically said, you know, how could, with the pole dancing on the cross, It's like, how could you not see this as offensive to christians like this is open blasphemy you know they drink semen out of chalices it's the most disgusting demonic blasphemous stuff i've ever seen surely we could all get on the same page and call for what it is right uh-huh. and so i called someone out i was like look like this is clearly blasphemy to catholics and they're like they're just dressing up it's just clothes like why do you care yeah. you know why, do you why don't you accept them for whatever and that was the moment for me i was like it does not matter they don't care it's not about they logic they will defend anything and everything So, and of course they threw at me, oh, don't you call yourself a Christian? Don't you have empathy and love for these people who've dealt with AIDS and, and they're um, oppressed and they're judged Why do you hate gay people? Yeah, exactly. And so I think why I was looking forward to having you on, I've kind of admired you from afar is that you cut through that BS pretty quickly. The, oh, aren't you Christian? Aren't you Catholic? Don't you, they're just trying to label you and you continue to not let them label you. And I really admire that. So Thank you so much for coming on the show. For people that want to follow your work and get more of you, maybe buy the book, where can they do so?
0: Um, You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Keenan Peachy. Um, You can follow me on Substack, .substack peachykeenan.substack.com. And the book, Domestic Extremist, is available on Amazon and everywhere books are sold.
1: Awesome. Stay extreme. Thank you for coming on.
0: Thank you.